How are you guys doing? You guys ready? All right. We're going to go ahead and open up in a word of prayer. Uh, we will be in Revelation chapter 4. <laughs> Romans. We'll be in Romans chapter 4. Just wanted to make sure we were all on the same page. But I'll go back through Roman, or Revelation chapter 4 if we want to. Um, we'll be in Romans chapter 4 today. Um, lo- looking forward to keep trudging through. Uh, looking forward to some good conversation, some questions tonight for us to kind of think about, to be challenged by. And um, yeah, to kick us off, we'll go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. So if we could just uh, close our, our eyes Uh, bow our heads this evening. Lord, we come to you. Uh, We come to you tonight and we thank you uh, for this day that you have allowed for us to gather together um, in the middle of the week to to learn more about your word, to dive deeper into scripture, uh, to be challenged by you, to be encouraged by you, um, to get to know um, each other better, to build a, a fellowship and a camaraderie uh, within the body. And so, Lord, I ask uh, tonight that uh, we would have questions that would come from this portion of Scripture, that we would learn, that we would be challenged to grow and to change. Uh, but when we depart from here, Lord, that um, our thoughts are meditating upon the things that we learned uh, tonight, these truths uh, that can help us to live um, a, a different life, a life that's saturated by you and by your word. And so, Lord, help us to glorify you through uh, what we learn here today. And I ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen um, and amen. So, um, looking forward to uh, this evening and uh, just have uh, a, a quick couple of questions uh, to start us off tonight. And the first one Uh, First one I'm looking for some responses uh, is this, what does it mean to you specifically? What does it mean to you to believe in God? What does it mean to you to believe in God? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, so to trust trust Him uh, for everything. Does anyone else want to add um, add to that. What does it mean? Yeah, go ahead, Kelly. Okay. So relational, um, r- relationship with God. What else? What does it mean to you to believe in God? Okay. So be- believing or trusting in His Word. Well, that would be a great answer. What else? This is not a trick question. I promise you. Ooh, permanence. That would be a, a fantastic word to describe. I love that. Thank you. Okay. Something that's everlasting or everlasting life. Okay. Good answers. Good answers. So then let me ask this question. How is your life different because you believe in God compared to those who do not believe it how is it different okay so having hope where there is there is those who do not what else what, someone else I was just gonna say that since I came to know God's Bible, 
Okay? So since having being saved by God, I'm now living my life to please him instead of self, or at least striving for, right? Right? What else? How is my life different? Okay, peace would be a great one. A great one. No need to rush. Same idea about peace. Yeah. No need to rush. Okay. An enhanced moral compass. Yeah. Right, right. I mean, we learned about that in Romans chapter 1. If you guys remember back, talking about how in man's, man, uh, 1 and 2, man's consciousness uh, can lead them uh, to do what is right according to the law, uh, but having an enhanced moral compass because I've been saturated by truth or I've been changed by those truths. Well, tonight, we're going to dive in, <coughs> excuse me, we're going to dive in uh, to talk a little bit more extensively about justification, about justification uh, through Christ. And we're going to look at a couple of examples. Paul is going to bring us two people from the Old Testament uh, that we're going to look at extensively, uh, one more than the other. And we're, we're going to look at da uh, David, King David tonight, and we're going to be looking at Abraham, uh, or some would call him Father Abraham uh, as I was studying this out, I couldn't help but think of that song uh, from my childhood, right? Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons did Father Abraham, and I am one of them, right? And so are, right, you were supposed to sing it with me, and so are you, right, right. Um, so let's just praise the Lord, right arm, right? And then we got to keep, anyway, we're, we're not going to do that tonight. Um, and so if, if, if you would, turn me to uh, Romans chapter 4. If you're not there, Romans chapter 4. And we're going to start out in verse uh, number 1. Verse number 1. And it says this, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Let's stop there at the end of number three. So in building upon chapter 3 and closing out, Paul asks a simple question to kind of start us off. Does the idea of justification through faith, apart from the works of the law, make what God did in the Old Testament invalid or irrelevant? And so Paul's asking this question to start off, but then he also answers it. He asks the question and then he gives the answer right after that in verse number three. And Paul's like, well, let's look at Abraham for a moment. He, he was the most esteemed man among the Jewish people of his day, even greater than maybe what America would see as George Washington or Abraham Lincoln. Uh, presidents that did a lot for our country, they were esteemed men of their time, but Abraham would have been more. Uh, especially in the eyes of the Jews. 
And, and it even says, for, for if Abraham was justified by works, then he has something to boast about. And so if anyone could be justified by works, they would then have something to boast about. Me as a human, you as a human, if we were able to rescue and save ourselves, then we would be able to say, look at me, look at what I did, look at how I got to heaven on my own apart from Christ. And so such boasting, Paul is saying, is nothing before God. It's nothing at all. In fact, he's saying this boasting is nothing before God because even if works could justify a man, he would still in some way fall short of God's glory. And the fact of this, you know, every pretense in the Bible is stripped away and it's evident that no one could really be justified uh, by works. That's why Paul made the statement, for what does Scripture say? What does Scripture say? So Paul's saying uh, we can't be justified by works. And for those who want to challenge that thought, well, let's just look back to God's Word. Let's look to what God said in His Word uh, about it. And then he goes, well, let's now, let's, let's not just look at something that's been written just before me. Let's not look at something that Christ himself spoke. Let's go all the way back to the Old Testament. Let's take it back to the very first book of the Bible, Genesis. In Abraham, we know, or in the Old Testament, does it not say that Abraham was declared righteous because of his works? Some of you are shaking your head. Others are like, what? Does the Old Testament say that Abraham was justified because of his works? No, it does not. In fact, if we look at Genesis chapter 15, and you don't have to turn there. I'm going to let this verse hit the screen for you. It says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. His belief is what, is what caused God to account righteousness to him. Paul made it very clear to us that Abraham's righteousness did not come because of performance of good works. Uh, it was a belief in God. Meaning that righteousness was obtained through faith. So I want us to think about this though. Because uh, in in Paul's day, the Jewish teachers believed that Abraham was justified by his works, saying that Abraham always kept the law. In fact, if you were to go and study ancient portions of writings that were written by the rabbis of Paul's day, you would find things like this. The rabbis said, we find that Abraham, our father, performed the whole law before it was even given. That's what they taught. They even went, in fact, to teach, give me just one second, they even went on to teach that Abraham was perfect in all of his deeds before the Lord. Go ahead. Through a different source, I heard of a guy named Seneca. Yes, he was the tutor of Emperor Nero. Yeah, Thank you. Seneca was, was the, the tutor. We, we talked a little bit about him in week number one, a little bit in week number two. 
Uh, the rabbis of Paul's day argued that Abraham kept the law by intuition and by anticipation of it. Now, if we go back and we study out the scripture that we have before us, we know multiple times in which Abraham did not keep the law. Can someone give me an example of a time that Abraham did something that was wrong? I'm sorry, go ahead. Okay, in, in which way? <laughs> Sarah. Sarah, okay. He lied not once, but how many times? Twice. Saying that Sarah was his sister. Yeah, go ahead. What else? Okay. I, technical, if you want to get technical, yes. They were related in that sense. Um, yes, go ahead. Okay, sleeping with his wife's handmaiden would be another sense. Now, what if I wanted to play devil's advocate for a moment and say to you that in that day and age, that was custom, and actually, according to Jewish law in that day and age, that was perfectly normal. Perfect. You were listening when I taught on that on Sunday, on that one Sunday several weeks ago. <laughs> anybody, anybody think of anything else? Where would Abraham... Yeah, go ahead, Melinda. Yes. He didn't... Do you remember who he took with him? The patriarch. Well, he took two people with him when he first left. Lot was one of them. He also brought Terah, his father. And if you study out the life of Terah, uh, you'll actually find out that Terah was a worshiper of our modern day... Um, oh my gosh, I just completely lost the name. Um, well, not, not Artemis. He was a worshiper of our modern day uh, God of Islam. Muhammad, not Muhammad. Um, I'm sorry? Allah, thank you. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. I was like, come on, why is it not coming to me? Uh, yes, he was a Tara. <laughs> I'm getting old. Yes, Terah, Abraham's father uh, in their culture would have worshipped our modern day Allah. And so um, there are multiple ways in which we know from scripture that Abraham didn't follow uh, the orders or the commands that God had given to him. Now the apostle Paul does not say that Abraham was made righteous in all of his doings, but that God accounted to Abraham righteousness, that it was given. Now, our justification as believers, our justification is not God making us perfectly righteous. It's counting us perfectly righteous. Did you guys catch that? It's not making us perfectly righteous. It's counting us as perfectly righteous. And after we are counted righteous, okay, God begins to make us truly righteous, culminating at our resurrection. Now someone tell me, how does God um, make us righteous? There's a big churchy word. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, so we're accounted, but there's a word that we, we, and we are, we do receive the righteousness of Christ, but how does he begin that process in us? What happens? Yes, sanctification. Sanctification is the process, the, the working in tandem for the believer with the Holy Spirit in order to produce 
in us godlike characteristics. Now, uh, that word in, in the text there, the word counted, a, that God accounted or counted or in some versions credited uh, to Abraham righteousness, it comes from the Greek word logizomai. Now, I want you to, to see something here uh, because I, I learned something very different about that's where we get our English word counted. And when we typically hear or see the word counted, we typically think, oh, the past tense of, of placing numbers in order to come to a sum or adding numbers together. In this sense here, in the original Greek writing, it means to put down to one's account. Meaning, I've deposited something for you. And because of that, you now have access to it. So think about it like this. Uh, if, if someone came and deposited a large sum of money into your, into your bank account, it has your name on it, you then have access to that funding that is there. And it's freely. You have free access to the funding in that account. And that's exactly what we're seeing here. God accounted. He deposited righteousness to Abraham. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Yes, that's where a part of that phrase would come from. Yes, because of this word here. Now we we know from Genesis 15:6, it does not say that men accounted righteousness to Adam or to, to Abraham, but it says that God accounted righteousness. So I want us to remember that the righteousness that, that we have uh, from God, right, that, that's been, in, I'm going to use this word a lot tonight, the word imputed, the word that imputed or imputation, meaning that it was placed upon us by God, and because of that, uh, righteousness is mistaken oftentimes in churches, uh, especially in some, in some churches that uh, would be a little bit more legalistic in their approach or they're more, more pharisaical uh, in their approach. Um, listen, righteousness is more than the absence of evil and guilt. Okay, don't miss this. Righteousness is more than the absence of evil and guilt. It is a positive Good. It is a positive good, meaning that God does not only declare us innocent, but he declares us righteous. So when God looks at you, if you are truly a child of God, when God looks at you, who does he see? Someone say, I, he sees his son. He sees his son. When God looks at you, he sees his son. Now Paul, though, begins to use uh, some, some words in these next two verses that oftentimes get missed in the teaching of this portion of Scripture. And so I want us to look now at verse number four. It says, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Now I want you to stop right there. 
we are now beginning to see the ideas or the principles of grace versus works. And though he's not using specifically the word grace here, he's trying to explain those two things to us. Grace has to do with receiving a freely given gift. Where works is to do with us earning merit before someone. And so a system of works seeks to put God in debt to us. Like I did enough for him to save me. Making, and in the thought of a works-based salvation, it makes God owe us. Meaning that his favor and his good behavior is coming only because I did something. Not the other way around. Grace says, I'm freely giving this to you. I'm giving this to you and you get to make the choice. Work says, hey, I did this so now you're indebted to me. You have to do this because I did this. Now I want us to, to just, I'm going to throw this out there to you and I'm not saying anything bad about anybody in this room. God, I don't want you to hear these two verses. I don't want you to hear these two verses and think to yourself, I can be lazy as a Christian. Paul said, to the one who does not work. Now God and nor Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, are praising laziness as a Christian. In fact, that's the antithesis of how a Christian should live life. And it's not simply the action between the worker and the non-worker and what Paul is specifying here. It's, it's between the worker and the person who doesn't work but believes. Is what, this is what we're talking about here. As the one who does not work but believes. And righteousness could never be accounted to the one who approached God simply on the principle of works. Instead, it's given to the one who believes on him who justifies the ungodly, is what Paul said. If you believe on him who justifies the ungodly. Someone tell me who's the ungodly. Who's the ungodly? Yes, yes, everyone who is not God is the ungodly. And if it isn't, listen, this is not as if God um, is joyous about our ungodly condition, okay? We are not justified because of our ungodliness. We're justified despite our ungodliness, okay? We're not justified because of our ungodliness. We're justified despite our ungodliness. Listen, yeah, go ahead. Sure. The work that you're talking about is not the work of men, but spiritual work. Um, in the sense of, in what Paul is talking about in this sense is not, not spiritual work versus physical. He's talking about the, the works of following the law versus what grace is. Does that make sense? Okay, so there is a paradoxical phrase that is used here in Scripture. Um, and it's the phrase, he that justifies the ungodly. Now that, that does not suggest 
to us in any way, shape, or form that justification is fiction. In fact, quite the opposite. Paul is saying to us that justification is a miracle. It's a miracle for the ungodly. And just as Abraham was justified, so our faith, our faith, is accounted for righteousness. There is not some special arrangement that only came to Abraham alone. Like we as, as sinners can enter into a relationship with God also here and now. Until uh, the moment that God um, sends Christ to return upon this earth and judgment comes, uh, there, there is an opportunity because of the dispensation of grace or the, the time period of grace in which we're living. And we know from scripture that time period will come to a close. That time period will come. And so um, we must understand that there are not two ways of salvation. There are not two, um, just one. Um, it is not saved by works through keeping the law in the Old Testament. It is saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, as was taught in the New Testament. And everyone, and I want you to, to please catch this, that everyone who has ever been saved in the Old Testament and in the New Testament were saved by grace through faith. Did you guys catch that? Everyone in the Old Testament and the New Testament were saved by grace through faith. Why? And be, why, why is that? Someone explain to me why that is. So that would, be, that would be an element of it. So think, think back to what we've just been reading about Abraham. Because of Abraham's faith, what was accounted to him? Righteousness because of his faith. So because of our faith in Christ, we receive mercy. Yes, yes, perfect. That very thought there. Because uh, of Abraham's faith, righteousness was accounted to him in the Old Testament. And because Christ had not come, they are not coming, so to speak, to salvation, this is the exact same way, but it is. His faith was accounted for righteousness, so our faith in whom? Our faith in Christ is what accounts righteousness to us. And so for us, there is no separation between the Old Testament and the New Testament. They are in, in conjunction with one another, and the believers there came to salvation the same way we did. The exact same way. Now I want us to look. I want us to look at what happens in verse number six because he says this that just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Amen, church? Blessed is the man. And in this case, the woman as well. Okay? <laughs> David in the Old Testament uh, knew what it was like to be a guilty sinner. In my opinion, <clears throat> David... Um, if you study out the life of David, David would have been sort of like the Paul of his day. 
the chief, the chief sinner, but yet the one who, who knew a lot about God. And, and the thing that I love most about David is not the fact that he was a, a wretch, but David was a great repenter. David understood repentance. David longed for his relationship with the Lord to not be hindered and broken. And every time David sinned, David's like, I can't do this. I have to have you back in my life. I can't have separation from you. In fact, in Psalm chapter 32, it says that his bones were crying out for his relationship with the Lord because it had been severed. It had been broken completely. And David cries out. I go back to Psalm 51. The entire, the entire chapter is a prayer to God. And he starts out by saying, Lord, I have sinned against thee. I've sinned against you. He didn't say, I, I sinned against this person or that person or I hurt them. Or I, no, he says, God, I sinned. I sinned against you. David knew what it was like to offend a holy God and he couldn't stand himself because of it. And so he knew the seriousness of his sin and how great it felt to be truly forgiven by God. Like he knew blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven. And so let me ask you a question for your own personal life. Do you remember a time where you were living a certain way or maybe you were involved in doing something that you knew was a blatant disobedience to God's word and you finally came clean you finally sought the Lord's forgiveness on that one area of your life. Someone tell me how you felt following that. How did you feel? Yeah, go ahead. Relief. Okay. There was joy in that. What else? Okay. Hopeful. That would be a great word. Freedom. That's a fantastic word. I'm sorry, heaviness, heaviness, yes, like a weight, weight was lifted off of you. You know, if, if David were to, judge, to be judged on works alone in his life, the righteousness of God would have had to condemn him if he were judged on his works alone. But David knew by experience that, that blessed was the man whose lawless deeds or his sinfulness or his transgression was forgiven Meaning that no sinner, no sinner at all could carry the sins of his, like of his own sin away and then come back cleansed of guilt. We're not able to do that. There's no amount of money. There's no science. There's no inventive skill. There's no army of millions. There's no earthly power that could carry away from the sinner even one little sin. And come back guiltless. Did you have something? Hallelujah. Yeah. Hallelujah. That's right. Do you know once a sin is committed. Every sin and the guilt that comes with it. Will cling to the sinner as close as his own shadow. Until he is forgiven by Jesus Christ. 
I, I, I think about this often that um, when man, when woman, when child, when teenager, when we sin as a believer, when, when we have done something uh, against God, there has to be a, a, a time in our lives where we have sought forgiveness for those things. There has to be a time where we've got on our knees or on our face before God and we've said, God, I'm, I'm sorry that I did this. Please forgive me for this thing that's been in my life. And in doing so, we are then restored in our relationship with God. So I want to throw out something to you. I want to throw out this crazy thought to you. Every day that we have the opportunity to breathe, we are a sinner. And in that day, we will sin in some way, shape, or form. And if we are not living a repentant life, a life that's constantly turning away from sin and self and turning towards Christ, then we can't grow. And when we can't grow, we begin to stagnate. And when we begin to stagnate, we stop reading our Bible. And we stop praying. And we stop fellowshipping with other believers. And in doing so, what happens to that person's life? We, yes, you... Yes, yes, you digress, you backslide. That's what happens to that, to that specific person's life. Now, I believe, I believe wholeheartedly um, God's word is very clear that when we seek the forgiveness of Christ, it is given. But there was a stipulation that was put in the Bible. Does anyone remember what, what the Bible says about the individual who seeks the Lord in ungenuine repentance? The one who goes to God repeatedly asking forgiveness for the same thing, but never changes. Does anyone remember what happens? Like the man who looks in the mirror and walks away and forgets what he looks like. Does anyone know where that's at? James. James chapter 1. Now real quick, I'm going to turn there because I want to read this to you. I want to read this to you. James chapter 1. <laughs> I'm sorry? I am going to start in verse 22. James 1.22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only. And what does he say? Deceiving yourself. Deceiving yourself. 
He says, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, meaning that if you come and you listen to truth and you don't respond to it, you go away unresponsive to what you know God has said is right, okay? If you, if you leave, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror, for he looks at himself and he goes away and at once forgets what he is like. James is saying that the one who looks in the mirror and walks away and has forgotten what he's like is not, one, reminding himself that he is a sinner in need of God's grace, but two, he's not responding to the truths that, that either he knows or he's been taught from a childhood or he's been taught as an adult and he still walks away unchanged. But, but James leaves us with something at the end of this chapter. He says, but the one who looks into the perfect law. What is the perfect law? Jesus. The one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and what does he say? And perseveres. The one who perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts. He will be blessed in his doing. He will be blessed. David agreed with Abraham regarding the idea of an imputed righteousness, a good that was given and not earned, okay? But what James is going to go on to say, that my faith in Jesus Christ will cause me to do what is right. It will push me to follow the law. It will push me to look to Jesus Christ. And if I say that I am a believer, if I say that I have been saved by the shed blood of Jesus Christ, and I believe in his death, burial, and resurrection, if I say those things, and yet I hear truth, and I walk away not applying it and meditating upon it, and not being changed by it, then I cannot truly say that I've been saved by the grace of God. That's what James is saying. James is, is telling us that blessedness comes through justification and that justification happens because I've been forgiven through Christ. I've been forgiven. And the one who is cleansed by God is the one who's been imputed righteousness the one who's been given the righteousness of Christ. Now, everything leading up to this point, everything, and in fact, listen, if, if you are a Christian in here and you've never read through the book of James, I highly suggest you go and you start reading the book of James. James is probably one of my favorite books in the New Testament that describes Christian living at the street level. Just, just right down to, he strips away all of the things and he says, this is how you should live your life. And that's what he gives to you. And, and I believe that everything that we see in the scriptures is always centered on what God places upon us, not what we do for God. Did you guys catch that? Everything in scripture is about what God places upon us or does for us, not what we do for God. Did you guys catch that? It's not what we do for God. It's what God has done for us. In fact, 
I'm going to kind of chase a rabbit trail for just a moment. If we study the Word of God and we read the Word of God and we attempt to place ourselves into the Bible, we're doing a disservice to ourselves. If we look at stories like David and Goliath and we're like, I'm going to be David and I'm going to conquer my giants, you miss the entire purpose of the story of David and Goliath. David was the Christ picture for us in that story. Goliath was supposed to be the picture of death. When we look at Daniel and the lion's den, we're not supposed to be Daniel. It was a picture of Christ overcoming certain death. These are all pictures. So the Bible is not, is not about me. It's about what God does for me and how I'm supposed to respond to it. You guys following what I'm saying? You guys tracking? The, the worst thing that we could do, that, that's where heresy, I'm just going to throw it out there, that's where heresy starts. When we attempt to place ourselves into certain positions in the Bible that we were never meant to have, that were never given to us. And unfortunately, there are pastors and churches and authors and theologians to this day that will tell you, well, you have this and you've got that and you've got this. Where in the, where in the Bible are we guaranteed any of those things? In fact, all of the apostles and disciples, with the exception of John himself, were all murdered. They were killed because of what they believed. John was the only one that didn't die. In fact, he was exiled to live on an island. And not just to live there, but it was an island in which they were forced into laborous situations. That's what Patmos was. It was a labor island where you went and worked until you died. And so anything that, that, that we receive from anybody that says that we are owed anything at all, walk away. Walk away because there's nothing that is owed to us as sinners, at least not from what we've been studying and reading in the Bible. I don't even deserve, I don't even deserve salvation, but it was freely given to me so that I can be justified as it is for you and you and you and you and you and you and you. Freely given. And so in, in, in this life, the way that I live and the things that I think about and the things that we read and the kind of music that we listen to and the movies that we watch and, and the people that we hang out with should be greatly affected because we've been given the righteousness of Christ. Should be greatly affected and everything should be looked at through that lens. Everything. In verse number 9, Paul wrote, Is the blessing then only for the circumcised? Or also for the uncircumcised. For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. And the purpose was to make him the father of all who believed with, without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham and I want you to if you have 
um, a pen or you're a highlighter, I want you to underline that one phrase in your Bible that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Yeah, go ahead. Agreed. Totally agreed. Suicide is that is the very thought that this is my only. Look, this is the only way for me. This is the only way that I have uh, because I didn't. And then fill in the blank. So yes, I, I would totally agree. I would totally agree with that. In fact, the scary thing to note is that suicides in our country have increased by nearly thirty-two percent in the last two years. And so what we thought were already high numbers of suicide have, have increased, have increased, drastically increased. And uh, it's scary to, to think that people have come to a place where they, they believe that the only way out for them is through suicide. It's through taking my own life. And... I suicide is a is a very suicide has a very is something that's very near and dear to my heart. Um, I had a a student in our youth ministry um, who who took his own life. Uh, probably our second or our third year um, in ministry. Uh, when I was a high school student, um, a friend of my sister and I shot himself um, on the weekend um, in Belding. Um, we went to Belding High School. Um, and then there was a young man who I invested in and have spent a lot of hours in life pouring into um, who I was in a a suicide ward and mental institution for him multiple times because he attempted uh, to take his life. And there, there has to come a, a time, and I know this has nothing to do with where we're at at this very moment, but there, there has to come a time um, in the Christian's life uh, where we have to know that every person that we connect with on a daily basis um, every, every face that we see at Meyer, every person that walks through the doors of our jobs, every person that we see uh, walking down the street outside of our homes, outside of our church buildings, outside of a restaurant, every person um, should be given an opportunity to hear the gospel from us. I'm not saying that you have to run and tackle them and, and, and speak the truth to them, um, but there, there has to come a point where we begin to see lost people as such, as lost. Looking to find direction. I wholeheartedly believe that nobody should ever have to come to the place where they decide suicide is the thing for me. I have nowhere else to go except for to, to just remove my life. Not only is it selfish of the individual to take one's life, um, 
but they, 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 there, should be, there should be a source of help for them. I'm not talking about just psychiatric help. Okay? I'm, not, I'm not talking about let's just medicate every person uh, just because. Um, that's not the answer. A lot of times our, our culture uh, throws medications at things because they, they're like, well, let's, it's, all about, it's all a money conglomerate. All of it is. The whole thing. And, um, and let's just mask the problem. Let's not take care of it. And that's the last thing I'm going to say about it. If we, if we are counted righteous by God because of faith, not because of circumcision, then the blessedness that's mentioned here in, in, in Romans 4, 7 can be given to the uncircumcised Gentiles of the faith. Abraham was counted righteous in Genesis chapter 15. Do you know that he did not receive the covenant of circumcision until Genesis 17, which was nearly 14 years after the first covenant that he made with God? 14 years between his first covenant with God and when he was circumcised or given the covenant of circumcision for the Jewish people. So his righteousness was not based on that circumcision, but on his faith. That's why Paul said it was accounted to him because he believed on God. In fact, Abraham, the father of all who believe, was declared righteousness while he was or righteous while he was still uncircumcised. So I I don't see how the the Pharisees or the rabbis of that day could say to anyone that a Gentile must be circumcised before God de- would declare them righteous. I, I just I, I struggle, but. But the, the Jewish people of Paul's day, uh, sh- there, was, there was a significance in circumcision that was more than just social. It, it was more than that. And in fact, it, for them, it was the entry point to live under uh, the law with one's life. And that's how they saw it. And in fact, um, Paul wrote in the book of Galatians um, that he testified that every man who was circumcised was a debtor to keep the law. And so to them, the, the circumcision was to live a holy life. And then the Jews thought that circumcision meant that they were the true descendants of Abraham. And Paul insisted that, that Abraham was, was the father And in order to be the father, we had to just walk in the same steps of faith that Abraham walked in. And so when he used that phrase, and why I asked you to underline that phrase, our father Abraham, it's an important phrase because it was one that the ancient Jews jealously guarded. That phrase, our father Abraham. Well, pastor, then why did you have us underline it? Well, the Jews did not allow a circumcised Gentile who had converted to Judaism to refer to Abraham as our father. They wouldn't allow for it. It was against Pharisaical law for a Gentile to refer to Abraham as our father. Yeah, go ahead. Did who know what? 
So the Pharisees at this point have either added to or altered the Mosaic law. Correct. Correct. Correct, correct. The, the Gentiles who converted to Judaism and were circumcised had to call Abraham your father. Your father, Abraham. And only a natural born Jew could call Abraham our father. And so Paul throws out this distinction and he's saying that through faith anybody can say our father Abraham. Anybody. And so for us as believers in here, Abraham is still considered the father of our faith. And so uh, just like any other Gentile, just like any Jew, he is our father, Abraham. Not that it brings some great significance. This is not like we're going to start praying to Abraham type stuff, okay? But there's significance in the fact that we are called, or we should call him our father, Abraham. And it must have been a shock for the Jewish readers of this letter to see that Paul was calling Abraham the father of the uncircumcised Gentiles. And it's as I read this and I study this, I thought to myself that it's, it's far more important to have Abraham's faith than it is Abraham's circumcision. Did you catch that? It is far more important to have Abraham's faith than to have Abraham's circumcision. Important for who? For all of us. Thank you. It's important for all of us. And so God... Correct. Yes. Yes. So God promises, or, or God's promise that was given to Abraham was based on the principle of faith, um, not the law and not on works. And so look, look with me at verse number 13. And so he says, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring um, would, would be that he would be heir of the world, did not, and it did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law, who are to be the heirs? Faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but there is no law, or where there is no law, there is no transgression. So since all God's dealings with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob happened before the giving of the law in the book of Exodus and Leviticus and even in Deuteronomy, we can't say that they were all based upon the laws, the promises that God gave. They were not based upon the law. Instead, they were based upon God's declaration of Abraham's righteousness through faith. And so I want to throw this out there to us. Faith for us is the ground of God's blessing. That is the ground of God's blessing. Meaning that Abraham was a blessed man, but he became the heir of the world on an entirely different principle, simply faith. Because of faith, he became the heir 
of the world. The law could not bring us into the blessings of God's promises. This is not because the law is bad. It's because we're unable to keep it. We're unable to keep it. So our... Hmm, how do I say this? Our inability to keep the law means that, it, that, that our transgression, so our sin, becomes uh, the vehicle of God's wrath towards us. And so um, the, the law, especially if we regard it as the principle by which we're justified and we relate to God. And so if we look at, if we look at the law as, as the means to how I am justified and how I relate to God, it brings nothing upon me except for God's wrath. Nothing upon me except for that. But Paul then made this crazy statement, where there is no law, there is no transgression. Where there is no law, there is no transgression. And I thought to myself, how could Paul say something like this? I mean, really, how could Paul say something? Well, because transgression... That word transgression is the right word for overstepping a line. It's the right word. And in fact, it's the right word for, for breaking a clearly defined commandment of God. Where there is no line, there is no actual transgression. Where there is no line. So the root of sinfulness in one's life. The root of sinfulness is, is not in breaking the law. It's in breaking trust with God. <laughs> the root of our sinfulness is not in breaking the law. It's in breaking trust with God. It's the moment where we deny God's love and we deny God's care and deny God's purpose in our lives and it's when we deny the very commandments that he's laid out for us do you know before Adam and Eve sinned in the garden they broke their trust with God therefore God's plan of redemption had to be centered on a relationship of trust through his son. And when we, yeah, go ahead. Sure. I would think that in, in his humanness, he may not have been able to grasp the weight of that blessing. I don't even think that anyone, anyone in this room could even attempt that. But I believe that because of Abraham's faith in God, he probably could grasp pieces of the thought or the weight of, so to speak, of being the patriarch of of everything, of it all. Does anyone else want to add to that? Well, 
When we, when we center our relationship with God on law-keeping instead of trusting, we go against his entire plan for our life. And so it's like Paul is saying, not only, not only for those who were in his day, we had the example of Christ but for those of you who say, law, 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 guess what? You had the example of Abraham. The example of the, the father uh, of your faith. And so look at verse 16. Look what Paul says. He says, that is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Faith here is related to grace in the same way that works are related to the law. And so grace and law are principles. Okay? Uh, don't, don't miss this. Grace and law are principles. But faith and works are the means by which we pursue those principles for our relationship with God. Did you guys catch that? I'll say it one more time. Grace and law are principles. Faith and works are the means by which we pursue those principles in our relationship with God. So to speak to, to speak very technically here. Okay, and I hope to not confuse or, or lose any of you. To speak technically, we are not technically saved by faith. Don't freak out. Technically speaking, we are not saved by faith. We are saved by God's grace. And that grace is appropriated to us because of faith. Did you guys catch that? Okay. Salvation is of faith and nothing else. And we can only receive salvation by the principle of grace through faith. Meaning that grace cannot be earned by works, whether they are past works or present works or even promised works into the future. And this is because by definition, grace is given without any regard to anything in the one who receives it. Did you guys catch that? Grace has nothing to do with me. In a nutshell, grace has nothing to do with me. Has everything to do with God. And that's why Paul said, so that the promise might be sure to all of the seed. Well, why did he make that statement? Well, the only way that the promise can be sure is if it came through God's grace. That's it. There's no way around it. If law was the basis of our salvation, then our salvation depends upon my performance and your performance. And no one can keep the law well enough to be saved by it. And so the law promise of salvation could never be sure like Paul is talking about. And so if our relationship with God is according to grace, then that relationship is for those who are of the faith of Abraham. Meaning that they, they are not of his lineage, but they, they follow in, in his steps, so to speak, towards Christ. So 
in, in saying this, think about it this way. A Gentile who is not Jew could say, though I'm not Jewish and I'm not of the law, I am of the faith of Abraham. So I, I'm able to be justified through Christ. So the, the fulfillment of the promise in Genesis 17, 4 and 5 is not found in, in Abraham's descendants only through Isaac, but in his role as being the father of us all who believe. And those believers come from every single nation under heaven. You guys tracking with me? Yes? <laughs> Look with me at verse number 17. As it is written... I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom you believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, and so shall your offspring be. Now let's just stop right there. So even as it took a supernatural life-giving work to make Abraham the physical father of many nations... It also took, took a supernatural life-giving work to make him the spiritual father of many nations. And those works uh, of God are demonstrated um, by his ability to count things that are not, such as our righteousness, as if they were, as in counting you and I righteous. And so think about, think about this. If God could call the dead womb of Sarah to life. He can call someone who is dead and their trespasses to new life, as Paul talked about in Ephesians chapter 2. And so as God's children, you, me, as God's children, we should be greatly comforted when God speaks in his word about us being righteous. We should be comforted when God speaks in his word about us being justified or glorified or holy or pure or even saintly. We should, be, we should jump for joy when those things are spoken about us in scripture because the life-giving power that we have within us was accomplished in Abraham as he believed as he believed, and that power was evident naturally and spiritually. It was both. Abraham's example helps us to understand the nature of faith. Listen, the conception of Abraham's son, Isaac, was a miracle, but it was not an immaculate conception. You guys tracking with me? This is not the Virgin Mary and Jesus' birth all over again. Abraham's faith did not mean in this sense that he did nothing and he just waited for God to miraculously create a child inside of his wife. Like Abraham and Sarah, like are you guys missing this? Abraham and Sarah had a marital relationship. And there are things that happen in marriage to produce children. You guys tracking with me now? Yeah. Do I need to spell it out? <laughs> yes, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> Abraham's faith did not mean that he just sat there and did nothing and just waited for God to produce a child in him. 
Abraham and Sarah had a marital relationship and they trusted God in that for a, uh, for a miracle. And so it shows us as believers, we are shown that faith does not mean that we sit and do nothing. As James would say, yes, but doing everything in trust and reliance upon God. Everything that we do. It was Charles Spurgeon. It was Charles Spurgeon who said this, that all true believers like Abraham obey. Obedience is faith and action. You are to walk in the steps of the faith of Father Abraham and his faith did not sit still. It took steps and you must take these steps also by obeying God because you believe him. That faith which has no works with it is a dead faith and will justify no one. He's saying faith causes people to take action. It causes people to move. And so we can't just say, I have all the faith in the world, so I'm just going to wait it out. Yeah, go ahead. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Leave the results up to God. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I mean there are no there are no limits. I love what Paul said in Ephesians Ephesians chapter 2, 1 and 2, but he reiterates it in 2 that God is a boundless uh, a God of boundless mercy, meaning that there is no limit to the amount of mercy and grace that he can give uh, to to cover the sinfulness of another being. And, and I I want to just throw this out there to you and at the moment the names are eluding me and I can go back and get them for you if you would like but in the 90s there was a family uh, somewhere out west who uh, was was a part of the early um, the early what I'm going to call extreme faith movement and they went to a church uh, where their son they had a young boy um, who uh, was diabetic. He was type 1 diabetic. And um, his pa- their pastor told the parents uh, following a service where they were talking about having uh, an enough faith. And they told the mom and dad, if you just had enough faith, your boy would be healed. And so they decided to take him off all of the diabetic medication that he was on. He was a boy. I want to say he was less than eight years of age. About three weeks in, the young boy slipped into a coma. And two weeks after that, he died in the hospital, could not save him. Mom and dad were convicted of murder of their child. And they did an interview years later. And they said, uh, there's a book, actually, I believe that the father wrote about the situation. And they said in that book... We believed the lie that if we just had more faith, more faith, that this would have happened. 
And he said, now where we stand and in our understanding of the Bible, yes, I can have faith and pray that God would have healed my son, but I still should have cared for him. I still should have done this. I still should have done that. And so God, God is not sitting here saying, if you just have a little bit more faith in me, if you just pray a little harder, if you just say these specific words, then it's going to happen to it's going to happen to you. It's going to happen for you. That's not true. That's not true anywhere in Scripture. And, and I, it's similar to what Satan was tempting Jesus. Um, ooh. God, jump off. Yeah. God. If you God he'll save you. Yeah. It would fall in line. Yeah. So the. Oh, never mind. That's, I'm going to get into something else. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead. Sure, but so then let me let me ask this question: If I and I'll use myself as an example, so I don't I don't kind of um, so I don't kind of um, enclose anybody here. Um, so let me let me just ask this question: um, If if someone came to me and said, Josh if you just had a little bit more faith, then your cancer would be completely gone. One, I would become very irate um, because you don't know how fervently I've prayed on my knees. You don't know how much I've begged of God to take, to take it away. And if I just let myself completely go and just say, well, I, I believe that God's going to heal me. If that was not God's will for my life and I didn't begin treatment and I didn't go to the doctor and I didn't, well, what could have happened? There's a possibility I could have died and I could have died very rapidly. If I would have gone and my doctor said to me back in October of last year that you have cancer and it's rapidly growing, we've already found other places that you, that you have it. And I said, okay, doc, I got this. And then I walked out and I never went back ever again. Never went for another scan. Never started treatment. Never went on hormone therapy pills. There's a, there's a huge possibility. Yeah, go ahead. Absolutely. And that's where, that's where, and I'm going to, and I'm not, that's where the prosperity gospel that's taught in our culture gets everything wrong in the Bible. The, the, the fact that, if I do what I want in my time, they say God's still supposed to respond to me in this way. But wait, how does that work? Where in Scripture does that line up? Where, where does that even go? And so in faith, I can trust that God will handle it the way he sees fit, but that doesn't prevent me from still doing what I know I should do. That doesn't mean I can't keep praying. That doesn't mean that I can't ask people to lay their hands on me. That doesn't mean that I can't say, listen, I'm having a really bad week and I don't know what's going on. Can you please, can you please saturate my family? And that doesn't mean we stop praying. That doesn't mean that we stop trusting. That doesn't mean that we don't still believe for miracles. But when the miracle doesn't come the way that we want it, are we still going to trust? Are we still going to believe? Are we still going to have faith to continue to press in? Because how many times, and just honest question, 
okay? Because this has happened in my own life. This happened at the very beginning uh, of my cancer scare and, and when everything came on, I had to take a step back and say, okay, God, am I praying selfish prayers? Am I selfishly praying for you to take this away from me just so I don't have to go through it? He did. But, and that's the thing, right? Multiple times he asked of God, take it away. But what did he say? But your will, not mine, but your will. And what happened? Did God take away the cup that was going to come to Christ? No. He had to endure the wrath of God in order for what? For salvation. And I'm not, please, I'm not comparing myself to Christ at all. That's not what I'm saying at all. So please don't hear that. That's not what I'm saying. I always think back quite frequently when I hear people say, well, I prayed and it didn't happen. Or I prayed in this and this didn't come. And one of, one of the phrases that gets me all jacked up and makes me so angry is the phrase, God didn't answer my prayer. Yes, God did. God always answers prayer. It's either no, yes, or wait. There's no unanswered prayer when it comes to God. None whatsoever. And so in faith, we can, we can still take action. We should still take action. Like I said, that doesn't prevent me from praying those things, but I also have to know, right, what did Jesus say to the disciples when they asked, is this man born blind because of his sin or because of his parents' sin? And what did Jesus say? No, so that I would receive glory. He was born with a handicap so Christ would, would receive glory. And so sometimes we're, we're walking through pain and suffering, and we have to continue to press in with faith, knowing that maybe, just maybe, God's trying to teach me something. Maybe he's trying to grow me in some area. But listen, pain is not fun. Would you guys agree with me on that? And sometimes pressing into faith is not easy when you're in pain. Would you agree with me on that too? I think sometimes, sometimes we fall in, into one of two ditches. We fall into the ditch of I'm not going to do anything because my faith is in my eyes so great that it doesn't matter what I believe or what I think, it's just going to come to fruition. And then we fall into the camp over here of I'm not going to seek for healing and I'm not going to pray for God to do something miraculous in my life, and when really we should be walking right in the middle of those, saying, I, I know that God can still heal, and I know that God can still work, and I'm not going to be over here believing that I don't have enough faith, or that my, my faith is weak, because to be honest with you, Abraham's faith Paul said it was strengthened. It was strengthened through his trial. Shoot, he was a hundred years old before that promise came to fruition. A hundred years of age before it happened. And he sought the Lord every day 
for that to happen. Listen, Abraham in his faith, give me just a second. Abraham in his faith did not look at his circumstances, but he looked at the promise of God. He looked at the promise of God. He didn't waver, Paul said. He didn't waver in in that faith to a place of unbelief. He just kept his eyes focused right on God. Man, how, how hard is it to keep your eyes always focused on God? How hard is that? Yeah. It's, and, and you guys have been in church how long? 58 years. 58 years, and it's still difficult, right? It's hard. But Abraham's faith didn't waver it just continued to give glory to God just continuously and through that huge challenge he he remained steadfast do you know agreed the more the more that we trust with our lives the, the more that, that does grow, it expands or it deepens, would be a great word, that it deepens in that. You know, Abraham's faith came because he had been fully convinced of God's ability to, to perform his, his promises. And so someone was going to, you both of you, Ken, and then... Sure, sure. I mean, John, John said the same thing, right? Um, I want to decrease so that you can increase. Um, yeah. Story time? <laughs> yeah. Were you going to add to that?
Sure. Sure. Agreed. I mean, God always, always uses suffering. And if you ever are in here and you're in a place where you're like, what is going on with my life? And I feel like it's, it's storm after storm after storm and it doesn't die. Go back and read the book of Job. Go back and read the book of Job. Um, there was a man who, who knew suffering. He lost everything. Um, and I would even go as far as to say that I know Scripture says that his wife was still alive, but he lost his wife too. I mean, not, not physically. Not physically. But man, like, she was even like, curse God. Are you kidding me? Curse him. His, his friends were saying the same thing. You ever been going through something and, and the person closest to you is like, well, what are you doing wrong? Anybody? That was Job's best friend's. That was Job's best friends. What are you doing wrong? Like this, it's it's crazy. Listen, in all of that, though, you know that there are some people who don't come to Jesus, or they don't go further in their relationship with Him because they are not fully convinced that He has the power uh, to be able to fulfill the promises um, that He's made in Scripture. And I think it, without without rubbing anybody the wrong way, I think that's, devil, that's a devilish attack um, on faith. A devilish attack, and it must be rejected. It, it, it sees, uh, we should see the work of God done in the immediate, but also the eternal. Go back to Abraham. The work, the promise that he made came in the flesh. Isaac was born, you guys remember from scripture? But guess what? The accounting the righteousness to him didn't come until Abraham was gone, until he was dead. And so there are ways in which God gives us promises that we may never see come fruition here on this earth. We may, we may never see it at all. And it was, it was Abraham who gives us this beautiful picture of the way that he works in the immediate and the eternal. God is always, always working. So let's look at these last two verses and then kind of close it out for the night. No, yeah, last three verses. 20, 23, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake only, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Listen, it was not only for Abraham's benefit that God declared him righteous through faith. It was for ours. He was the example that we were invited to follow. And Paul's confidence is glorious. It shall be imputed to us who believe. Meaning the same righteousness that it was not just for Abraham. Now when we talk about faith like saving faith in Jesus, it's important for us to emphasize that we mean that we believe in his work. Now, um, if you were to share the gospel with somebody, someone tell me the three main things 
No, let's say the four main things that you need to help somebody understand before they pray for salvation. Four things. What are the four things? Yep. Okay. Okay. It, it makes sense. I was going in a completely different direction, though. Melinda, four things. Perfect. That's the first thing. You have to know that you're a sinner, she said. You have to know that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. Yes, the death, burial, and the resurrection. Okay? And I'm, and I'm going to explain to you why we need to know these four things. So if you are ever having an opportunity to, yeah, gold star, gold star. Um, if you ever have the opportunity to share the gospel with somebody, they need to understand those four things. If they don't understand those four things, it's what we would call a false conversion. If you don't understand those four things, you cannot truly be saved by God. That's according to scripture. That's not my words. That's exactly what the Bible teaches us. Exactly what the Bible teaches us. There are many false faiths. I'm going to try and explain this to you. There are many false faiths that could never save an individual. Only the faith in what Jesus accomplished with his life on the cross, through his death, and then through the resurrection, can, can save us, okay? So, hear me out. Faith in the historical events of Jesus' life alone does not save you, okay? Faith in the beauty of the way Jesus lived does not save you. Faith in the accuracy of what Jesus taught does not save you. You guys still tracking with me? Okay. Faith in the deity of Jesus himself does not save you. Just saying that I have faith that there is a God is not enough to save me. The only faith that saves the person, only faith, is in believing and confessing in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's not enough that Christ lived a sinless life. It's not enough that he just died on the cross. Because if he just died and was never resurrected, then death and sin were not defeated. They weren't. And so the resurrection has to have an essential place in our sharing of the gospel and in redemption. Why? Because it demonstrated that God was satisfied by the payment of his son's blood. And it proves to us that what Jesus did on the cross was in fact the perfect sacrifice. Now, we're going to close with this thought and then I'm going to ask you a question. Paul said that it was delivered up because of our offenses. It was delivered up. Now that word delivered comes to us from the Greek word paradidomi. 
paradidomi, it's on the screen. And it means that justice was served. That justice was served. And so what Paul was saying, what Paul was saying in verse 25, saying who or Jesus was the one where justice was served for our trespasses or for our sin. And he's talking about a judicial act of God delivering the Son to the justice that required the payment of the penalty of human sin. And so Jesus' resurrection always must include the sacrificial death, but it must bring out the all-sufficient resurrection. It must. If death held him, he would have failed. If death held Christ, he would have failed. But since he was raised from the dead, his sacrifice was sufficient. And it was the seal that death and sin were defeated. So so Christ meritoriously worked justification and salvation by his death. And the efficacy depended upon the resurrection. The efficacy. Do you know that one verse here, number 25, here in your Bible, is the abridgment of the entire gospel. The whole thing hinges on that one piece. And in this chapter, Paul clearly demonstrated that there was no way that the Old Testament contradicted the New Testament and the gospel in which we are to share. Instead, the gospel was a fulfillment of the Old Testament and Abraham was justified through faith and that is the pattern by which the Bible teaches us salvation by grace through faith and we're justified. So then let me ask you this final question. If the church, if the church is to fulfill the Great Commission, okay, meaning that we are to extend the gospel to all people, in what areas of our life do we need to have greater faith? Where is, where is greater faith required? If we are to share the gospel with all people. Yeah, go ahead. I, I've said this a number of times. I don't really like people. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, you don't like people. All right. So, I guess I have to overcome. No, not so much. Anyway. <laughs> listen I I hear you because I would would rather um, be shut up in my office with my books so I, I understand that might come out of the mouths of people. 
Yes. But behind everyone, 95% of the time, is going to be, and what good does it do me? So when you go from that position, <laughs> it's real hard to come up with an answer. Sure. Because I understand the prosperity doctrine. Yep. And so does someone want to answer that question if you're sharing the gospel with somebody and someone replies back to you well what good does it do me or what is it why is it good for me what do we say okay so what if that person didn't so the, the response, if you guys didn't hear it, was to, to be saved from hell. So you, you don't spend eternity separated um, from the love and mercy and grace of God. So what if, I'm going to play devil's advocate for a minute. What if the person's like, I don't even believe in hell? Where do we go? Okay. Yeah, Amy. <laughs> so you're saved from hell. You receive a father who loves you, who doesn't abandon you. You get growth because of that. Right? Sure. Sure. Right? Come, yes.
Sure. What else? What else? Yep. Someone tell me how faith comes. By hearing the word of God. Yeah. You are the leader of your family. Yes. You are the head of your household. Yes. Well, I don't feel like it, but you are the head. Right. So we got to do it. Right. Absolutely. So in order for our faith to be deepened, in order for it to be increased, we must read and speak truth. Not my truth and your truth and their truth and the magazine's truth and the TV's truth. God's truth, the words that are right here in the book that as of right now, we are still able to freely read in this country. And there could come, and I'm not not trying to scare you, but there could come a day, there could come a day where we could be in serious trouble for having this, where we could be in serious trouble for carrying this, 
Or we could be in serious trouble for trying to gather publicly uh, to worship God. If this was removed from you, if this was removed from you, how much truth would you honestly know? I'm not talking about things that you perceive to be true. I'm talking about you know for a fact that they are true. Thank you for your honesty. You would be lost. And, and I'm not, this is not like to panic mode anybody. But really this, in order to be a faithful Christian, we must be faithful to the word of God. If we're not faithful to the word of God, how can you follow Christ? You can't. Your faith will be, sorry to say this, but your faith will be weak if you are not reading scripture. Your faith will be weak. Your trust in God will be weak. Your faith in your relationship and the promises that come from Scripture and what Kim was speaking about specifically, we, we won't know them. Our minds will not be saturated by things of godliness or things that are holy if we don't know this. Yes. Yes. Sure, sure. Listen, I don't want anyone to... Let me just ask this question. How many of you struggle with scripture memorization? That's okay. I think I've shared this before. Maybe in the last last, uh, Bible study, uh, my wife struggles very badly with, with memorizing scripture. And she... Carries, she carries around um, index cards. She'll come across something in, in Scripture that ministered to her, something that she needed, and she will, she'll write it on, a, on an index card, and she carries them around in her back pocket. You never even know it. She'd never say it to you, and if she's wearing clothing that has no pockets, she has them in her purse, and she takes them with her everywhere that she goes. Why? Because she wants to constantly allow for her mind to be saturated by truths. So she's meditating upon those things. Because guess what? All it takes is that right there and you're walking towards left field. It takes that right there and you've just, you just took a second look at that woman. It takes that right there and you just thought about something you used to do in your past. It takes that thought right there. That's it. Listen, if I tell you not to think about the pink elephant, you're going to think about the pink elephant. That's what happens. That's, that's what happens in this life. We must have truth to combat. Our faith will never grow. Our trust of God will never grow without the word of God. So in order to be faithful people, we have to start with being faithful to truth. Being faithful to truth. Right now, I feel like I have to be selfish. Sure. What do you mean by that? I need to strengthen or weed me what I eat, you know? Sure. And all these years. Uh, so I have to soak up everything I can with sure. my own friends and sure. somebody else. So sure. So I think there's, there's a, 
hmm, how do I say this? There's, there's a flip side to, to that thought. So first of all, I'll just make this statement. Um, don't ever think that you can't invest into the life of somebody else. As long as you're a little bit further along than they are, then you can invest. On the other side of that, um, oftentimes Christians, um, Christians become the sponge. We just soak it all in and we never give it back out. Now, if, you, if you're not soaking anything in, you, you're going to run dry. You're never gonna, you won't be able to give anything out if you're not taking it in. And so there's a balance that has to occur in our lives of taking in, but also, also giving out. So Paul commanded Timothy to teach the people to bring people along with them in this life. Meaning, who am I investing? Who am I investing into? And so for you senior saints in here, who are you investing, who are you investing into in the generations behind you? Who are you investing in? Listen, I, 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 didn't want, I don't want to be in Timothy's place. He said, Paul told Timothy to go tell, the, go tell the senior saints with the things that they're doing wrong. Go tell the senior women the things that they're doing. Can you imagine that? And Timothy was younger than I am when he stepped into ministry. But the investment, like who am I investing into? Who am I investing? And so, yeah, go ahead. You guys don't have to stay. You guys can leave whenever you feel you have to or need to. Sure.